So it's now time for us uh, to open God's Word. Uh, So this morning we're uh, continuing our series in 2 Kings. So please open your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 9. Uh, That can be found on page 527 in the church Bibles uh, or will be on the, the screen next to me here. So I'll be reading various parts of chapter 9 and 10 starting at the beginning of chapter 9. Uh, Before we read, let me give you a brief introduction to the main characters we're about to meet and let you know that the passage today has a lot of conflict and violence. At the end of 1 Kings, we learned about King Ahab and his wife Jezebel, uh, who were described as evil and vile. Uh, They led Israel into worshipping idols, they put to death God's prophets and murdered innocent Israelites just to grab their land, including a man named Naboth, in 1 Kings 21. Because of this, God had had promised to bring an end to Ahab's family, just like they had ended Naboth's family. As we begin reading chapter 9, Ahab's son, Joram, is on the throne of Israel. But the main focus today is on a man new to the story called Jehu. Uh, uh, All we know about him in the story so far is that God had told Elijah in 1 Kings 19 to anoint Jehu king of Israel. God told Elijah that by his sword, God would bring justice for the sins of Ahab. So let's read uh, 2 Kings, uh, uh, verse 1 through to uh, verse 13. The prophet Elisha summoned a man from the company of the prophets and said to him, tuck your cloak into your belt, take this flask of oil with you and go on to Ramoth-Gilead. When you get there, look for Jehu, son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi. Go to him, get him away from his companions, and take him into an inner room. Then take the flask and pour the oil on his head and declare, This is what the Lord says, I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and run. Don't delay. So the young prophet went to Ramoth-Gilead. When he arrived, he found the army officers officers sitting together. I have a message for you, Commander, he said. For which of us? asked Jehu. For you, Commander, he replied. Jehu got up and went into the house. Then the prophet poured the oil on Jehu's head and declared, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anoint you king over, over the Lord's people Israel. You are to destroy the house of Ahab, your master, and I will avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all all the Lord's servants shed by Jezebel. The whole house of Ahab will perish. I will cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and like the house of Bashar, son of Ahijah. As for Jezebel, Dogs will devour her on the, uh, on the plot of ground at Jezebel, and no one will bury her. Then he opened the door and ran. When Jehu went out to his fellow officers, one of them asked him, Is everything all right? Why did this maniac come to you? You know the man and the sort of things he says, Jehu replied. That's not true, they said. Tell us. Jehu said, Here is what he told me. This is what the Lord said. I anoint you king over Israel. They quickly took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. And then they blew the trumpet and shouted, 
Jehu is king. So now we're going to skip over the rest of chapter 9. Uh, in the verses we're skipping, Jehu mounts a swift and effective military coup uh, and kills Joram, son of uh, Ahab, and Jezebel, Ahab's queen, dies a cursed and gruesome death, fulfilling what God had said through Elijah many years previously. So we'll pick up again at the start of chapter 10. So now there, there were in Samaria 70 sons of the house of Ahab. So Jehu wrote letters and sent them to Samaria, to the, the officials of Jezreel, to the elders and to the guardians of Ahab's children. He said, you have your master's sons with you, and you have chariots and horses, a fortified city and weapons. Now as soon as this letter reaches you, choose the best and most worthy of your master's sons and set, set him on his father's throne. Then fight for your master's house. But they were terrified and said, if two kings could not resist him, how can we? So the palace administrator, the city governor, the elders and the guardians sent this message to Jehu. We are your servants and we will do anything you say. We will not appoint anyone as king. You do whatever you think best. Then Jehu wrote them a second letter saying, if you're on my side and will obey me, take the heads of your master's sons and come to me in Jezreel by this time tomorrow. Now the royal princes, 70 of them, uh, were with the leading men of the city who were rearing them. When the letter arrived, these men took the princes and slaughtered all 70 of them. They put their heads in baskets and sent them to Jehu in Jezreel. When the messenger arrived, he told Jehu they had brought the heads of the princes. Then Jehu ordered, put them in two piles at the entrance of the city gate until morning. The next morning Jehu went out. He stood before all the people and said, you are innocent. It was I who conspired against my master and killed him. But who killed all these? Know then, not a word the Lord has spoken against the house of Ahab will fail. The Lord has done what he announced through his servant Elijah. So Jehu killed everyone in Jezreel who remained of the house of Ahab, as well as all his chief men, his close friends and his priests, leaving no survivor. So we're going to jump now, down now to verse 28. Uh, so in what we've skipped over, Jehu executes many more uh, supporters, relatives and officials of Ahab's family. We're told that Jehu killed everyone, everyone left of Ahab's family according to what God had spoken through Elijah. Jehu in these verses also tricks all the prophets of Baal into gathering to worship, but then executes all of them as well. So we pick up again uh, from chapter 10, verse 28. So Jehu destroyed Baal worship in Israel. However, he did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which, had which he had caused Israel to commit, the worship of the golden calves at Bethel and Dan. The Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in accomplishing what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab all I had in mind to do, your descendants will sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. Yet Jehu was not careful to keep the law of the, law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, which, had, which he had caused Israel to commit. In those days, the Lord began to reduce the size of Israel. Hazrael overpowered the Israelites through the territory east of the Jordan in all of the land of Gilead, the region of Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh, from Aroah to the Arnon Gorge, 
through Gilead to Bashan. As for the other events of Jehu's reign, all he did and all his achievements, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Jehu rested with his ancestors and was buried in Samaria. And Jerohoaz, his son, succeeded him as king. The time that Jehu reigned over Israel in Samaria was 28 years. Thanks very much, Lockie. Um, it was in the earliest years of the church, around 150 AD, an uh, influential teacher and preacher hit the headlines. A guy called Markian uh, was born in what we now call Turkey, and there's a, a picture of him up on the screen here. Markian came to the conclusion that the God we meet in the Old Testament, the, the Creator God, must be an entirely different God to the one we meet in the New Testament, the Father of Jesus. Markian simply refused to believe that the God we read about in the Old Testament, who has wrath, uh, who, is, uh, who, has, who acts in judgment and injustice, that he could be the same God we read about in the New Testament uh, with mercy and grace and forgiveness. Or at least that's how Markian would describe the Bible. Uh, in fact, Markian produced his own version of the Bible, which involved getting his scissors and his glue stick out. Uh, and he selected the bits of the Bible he liked from what Jesus said and from what Paul said, and he cut everything else out. And so he created a version of the Bible that he liked, uh, the version of Christianity he wanted. A version that's always positive, always affirming, uh, without any sense that God is a judge. And so Markian has actually cast a really long shadow over the church. Uh, even if you've never heard that name before, um, my guess is you've heard that argument before and perhaps considered it carefully yourself. In, all around us, there are watered-down versions of what Markian taught uh, all over the place. Um, sometimes it's preachers explicitly saying things like, well, Christians shouldn't hitch ourselves to the Old Testament. We shouldn't really focus on it at all. Uh, more often, though, it's not explicit. Uh, it's usually just in our own reading of the Bible or in, or in preaching programs of a church. There's just not much attention uh, given to uh, parts of the Bible unless we already like them and are familiar with them. We're not getting our uh, glue sticks and scissors out, but we tend to sometimes just stay away from the parts that are a bit uncomfortable uh, and a bit confusing. And so with Markian in mind, like how do we make sense of all that blood spilled uh, that we just heard about in uh, 2 Kings 9 and 10? Uh, not just blood spilled, but by the hands of someone that God had commissioned, and perhaps more alarmingly, we heard at the end there, God even approved of his work. So is Markian right? Because at first glance, what we just read, as bewildering and as confusing as it might seem, uh, the first thing you might think was, that's not at all what Jesus teaches, is it? Uh, forgive your enemy, show mercy, give a second chance. Uh, what I want to say today, and what I hope we'll kind of see as we go through this story carefully, is that Markian is dead wrong. Uh, he's wrong for all sorts of reasons, but the one I want to focus on today is that he just hasn't understood how important justice is. Um, in our world, justice is so important. It's important through every page of the Bible, and it's very important to Jesus. So I'm hoping as we look at this passage, uh, I hope it will grow our confidence as a church uh, to put those scissors down, put them away, uh, and to rather, like Markian did, rather than make ourselves the judge of what God should or shouldn't be doing, um, I'm hoping this kind of passage might help us grow in our trust that God really does care deeply about justice, and even if that is un uncomfortable, we might see that it is actually a really, really good thing. 
Now, if you're new today or if you just missed last week, I can appreciate that jumping into uh, the passage Lockie just read is bewildering. Names, places, politics, it's all over the shop. Uh, It's not easy, uh, especially if you're new-ish to the Bible. Uh, It's a a big thing to get your head around this morning. Um, The main thing I want to just re-emphasize, Lockie already gave a really helpful intro here. Uh, The main thing I want to re-emphasize to make sense of this passage and what's going on is just how bad and how ruthless and evil King Ahab and his wife Jezebel were. Um, if you go back and read 1 Kings, 19, or 1 Kings, the book before this one, you see how much innocent blood they shed. And you can sort of do the tally of how many, or actually there's countless families that were impacted by their violence. Uh, to make it worse, uh, it's not just they were violent. The main job description of the kings of Israel, the main thing they had to do is be faithful to God. Um, Jezebel and Ahab did the exact opposite. Uh, They led the nation away from worshipping God and they led them towards worshipping idols. And because as the king and queen, they are the law, they've just been getting away with it. There's been no court of appeals and in this time, of course, there's no elections. You can't just get rid of the king by voting them out of power. And so under their rule, they murder whoever they want and get away with it. Or so it would seem. If the universe had no justice... Ahab and Jezebel and countless others like them would get away with it. Stalin, Pol Pot, Hitler, uh, the guy that invented those ads you can't skip. So much to answer for. But in Two Kings, uh, what we see time and time again, there is a comforting thought, uh, because no matter how bad the king is that we read about, they will be held to account, because they, like every one of us, will give answer to the king of kings. There will be justice, even if it doesn't happen straight away. Now, as Lockie mentioned, back in 1 Kings, Ahab and Jezebel, they murdered a pretty random guy, just a kind of a nobody, a guy called Naboth. Uh, They did that because they wanted his land. They had had land, but they wanted more. And so God sent Elijah, uh, the prophet, to King Ahab with a message, because of your evil, I am going to bring disaster on you. Uh, Every descendant you have will die. And your wife Jezebel, she will be devoured by dogs. Amazingly, if you go back and read that, you see Ahab showed some remorse at that point, uh, and God said, well, he's shown remorse, so I'm actually going to delay that judgment. I'm going to delay that to the next generation. What God was doing is he was giving Ahab and his family more time, and he gave them plenty of chances, plenty of warnings from the prophets to change their ways, but after a generation, they haven't changed. And so as we pick up the story today, after a generation of waiting for justice, Ahab's son Joram is on the throne. And God's word prompts massive changes in Israel's history, and it brings justice for all those who fell by Ahab's sword. Now, uh, chapter 9, though, it starts with a kind of light comedy. Uh, There's kind of some funny moments in the start of chapter 9. So it starts with Elisha, who is by now sort of the boss of the prophets in Israel. He's he's in charge. Um, Elisha gets a junior prophet, one of his underlings. Uh, He gives him a bottle of oil, tells him to uh, to tuck his cloak into his belt, kind of like, you know, put on your running shoes. Uh, and says, go and find Jehu, anoint him the king, and then run away again. Uh, It's a drive-by anointing, it would seem. Uh, And Jehu, as it turns out, is the commander of the army. So spare a thought for this poor junior prophet. Um, This is an odd kind of thing to uh, to be tasked with. Go and find the general of your national army, ask him to come with you into a room, like a broom closet or something, dump a bottle of oil on his head, tell him he's the king, give him his mission, and then bolt. Um, that's a very strange day in the office for this poor guy, isn't it? But have a look. The, 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 I think the feature of this is the instructions uh, that Jehu's given uh, in verse 7. 
as the prophet tells him his task. I'll read them again. Here's his task. The prophet says, You are to destroy the house of Ahab, your master, and I will avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the Lord's servants shed by Jezebel. The whole house of Ahab will perish. I will cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. This is God announcing his verdict, isn't it? Uh, He's announcing his verdict as judge over Ahab. And so before we push on further and uh, sort of cover the many details uh, that Lockie's read for us, let me just say something I think is uh, very important, but just in case it's not obvious here, um, what we're reading is not setting an example that we should go and follow somehow. Uh, Jehu is not setting an example for us. Rather, we're told this story so we can understand, not so we can follow an example, so we can understand. Uh, We're dealing with history and reading about what God has done in history so we can understand what God is like. Now, this story is set in Israel, and God and Israel, and also the kings of Israel, have a very unique relationship. God had chosen to enter into a covenant relationship with Israel. Uh, They were to be his special nation. He was to be their God, and that was to happen from one generation to the next. The king, his job, he had to lead the nation in worship of God. And so these chapters are all about that, breaking down. These chapters are not just about God, uh, just there's someone he doesn't like. It's not about someone who's a bit naughty. Uh, this is all in the context of the covenant. And the nation had become infected. Uh, infected by Ahab and also by Jezebel. And that infection, like infections, does, like infections do, it spread. And to give the nation the chance to heal, uh, God's verdict here is proving he loves Israel and wants them to live. Like a surgeon uh, removing a cancer that would otherwise be fatal, Jehu is given that task as a surgeon to remove the infection from God's precious nation. Back to the story. Uh, Kind of light comedy picks up again from verse 11. Uh, The prophet has dumped the oil and he's run. Uh, Jehu casually wanders back to his uh, army mates and they say, is everything okay? Uh, What's going on with this this crazy running prophet over there? Ah, it's nothing, says Jehu. You know what those prophets are like, always running around saying weird stuff, don't worry about it. But you can't just picture his comrades uh, just looking at Jehu with oil just running down his face, dripping all over his clothes. And, uh, what's really going on here? Like, what's, what's happening? Well, guys, says Jehu, guess who God just made king? This guy. And verse 13, do you see how quickly they get on board with this? They quickly uh, get behind him, no questions asked, and say he is now the king. The army, I don't think, are too fond of Ahab's son, Joram, and they don't seem to mind putting their commander on the throne. There's often great advantages for an army uh, with their, their man on the throne. But what I want to point out at this, uh, at this point of the story is Jehu hasn't exactly been reluctant, has he? Um, he's been told, step up, kill a bunch of people and take the crown for yourself. He doesn't push back at all. He gets on with it, and as we're about to see, he really throws himself into this killing thing. He's alarmingly good at it. Uh, It seems to me, as we read this part of the story, Jehu, uh, as the commander of the army, he may have been wanting to do this anyway. It's not uncommon to take take the the throne for yourself. But it takes God's word to get that ball rolling. Now, we didn't read uh, the next section of chapter 9 for the sake of time today. It's it's a long section. Uh, I know growth groups have been reading it during the week and finding it really helpful. And alongside that, I'm hopeful many of you took up my challenge from last week, if you remember. And my challenge was to try and read through two kings yourselves in the coming weeks. And I encourage you to come back and read uh, this whole section again uh, if if you're able to. 
But the basic summary from verse 14 onwards, a bit we skipped, uh, Jehu is definitely up to the task. Um, he and his army, they, they launch a very effective coup. They march to where King Joram is. Uh, long story short, Joram, uh, sorry, Jehu kills Joram. It's a piece of cake. Uh, and then uh, Jehu organises to have Joram's body dumped in the field that belonged to Naboth. Uh, that's the guy Ahab murdered. And the reason he does this is because God had told Ahab, I will make you pay for this land. And so Jehu makes sure that God's word is fulfilled. You realise at this point, Naboth, uh, just a random guy, uh, normally he would be forgotten in history. But you realise here, he's not forgotten by God. Ahab and Jezebel treated Naboth like dirt, like something disposable. But God saw that, God remembered. And here he brings justice, just like he said he would. And that's very bad news for Jezebel because God had, also dead, uh, God had also said that her death would be gruesome, it would be bloody, and that would fit her many, many crimes. And so the end of chapter 9 recounts Jezebel, she, looks, she sees Jehu coming. Uh, remarkably, she goes and puts her makeup on, uh, she does her hair, she leans out of a window as Jehu rides near and she says basically, have you come in peace, you murdering jerk? She's not exactly making friends at this point, uh, it seems that uh, is what's going on. Now, Jezebel, bear in mind, she's had this warning hanging over her head for decades now that God would bring judgment. She sees her death arriving. She sees Jehu coming. She could humble herself, couldn't she? She could beg for forgiveness and seek God's mercy. She does the opposite. Uh, with pride and defiance, she stands against God's judgment to the end. I think putting on the makeup, doing her hair, it's, I think it's making a mockery of her death and the judgment coming her way, as if to say, watch how magnificently I'll die. But her death is not magnificent. It's terrible. It's grotesque. She's thrown from a window. She's trampled by horses. Her blood goes everywhere. And then uh, a really macabre and hor horrific scene. She's finally eaten up by dogs, uh, just as God had said she would be. It's horrible. Now, how do you react to this account of Jezebel's death? Um, reacting might be hard if you, you, know, you come in cold to this, you haven't got your head around her storyline, she's just a name at this point. Um, I think it's right, though, to have mixed emotions about this. I think I'd be a bit concerned if we're all like, oh, great, she got what she deserved, that's fantastic, good riddance. At one level, it's true, she has got what she deserved, yet the Bible, I don't think, ever paints death in a flippant way. Every life is precious, in fact, the Bible tells us God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. Rather, he's pleased when they turn from their ways and live. I think it's right for us to be uncomfortable and impacted by any death, but it's also right at this point to give thanks that God does bring justice. Because imagine if he didn't. Imagine, for instance, if they got away with it. Take, for example, uh, the widow of Naboth, uh, that man killed a generation ago. Uh, every day, uh, for a generation, she has faced, I imagine, financial ruin, her livelihood, her land was stolen from her. Far worse, she carries the grief with her every day of a murdered husband and murdered children. For decades, she endures while Ahab and Jezebel keep doing whatever they want, with no one to answer to. There are countless men and women in Israel whose lives had been destroyed by Jezebel, um, they would have certainly been relieved and have celebrated to hear of her death. Because it proves, doesn't it? It proves there is a God who brings justice in the end. 
This is a universe where there is justice and no one escapes it. Alongside that, I think Jezebel's defiance in the face of God's judgment serves as a warning to us. Uh, There are people who are planning to live without bending their knee before their creator, but hoping maybe to have a deathbed conversion at the end, live for ourselves now, and maybe one day we'll uh, check out this God thing. Jezebel proves that the longer we leave repenting of living in defiance to God, the harder our hearts get, and the less likely we are to return uh, to him and, uh, and, and to do that at a future date. Jezebel had decades. The prophets kept warning her, but she chose defiance right to the end, and she paid the price. Now, as violent as chapter 9 is, uh, Jehu's work is just getting underway, and chapter 10 is particularly brutal and bloody. At the start of chapter 10, which uh, Lockie read for us, uh, it outlines how Jehu is not just handy with a sword, he's also a very savvy and shrewd politician. Uh, He knows how to consolidate power. And so that's what happens in verses 1 to 3. He sends some letters to the officials in charge of the princes from the family of Ahab. And the letter he sends is basically a challenge. He says, look, put one of the princes on the throne, then come fight me. Let's, Let's have it out. Uh, but verse 4, if you're following along, for good reason, the officials think, well, that's, that's not a great idea. Let's not fight Jehu. After all, he's got an army behind him. And secondly, it's clear by now, he's very, very good at killing people. Let's not get killed. So verse 5, the officials betray the princes. Uh, they're doing that to save their own skin. They swear their loyalty to Jehu, saying, look, we'll do whatever you think is best. So verse 6, Jehu writes back chillingly, uh, prove you're on my side and bring me the head of 70 princes tomorrow. Now, in the way the story is told, there is not a moment's hesitation, is there? Um, That's exactly what the officials do. No one sort of steps up and says, hey, maybe we should try a different plot. Let's come up with a different plan that doesn't involve slaughter. Could we try that? No one does, which I think is another way we see that the rot has set in in Israel under Ahab's rule. The leaders of the nation, they have no problems in slaughtering people if it helps them. It is a particularly sad legacy that Ahab has left behind. There is no one righteous, there is no one courageous on his team, and so they are complicit in ending the line of Ahab. Uh, From verses 8 in chapter 10, Jehu sets up a truly grotesque scene, doesn't he, with the heads of the princes piled up outside the city gates. And then he uses that uh, sort of grotesque spectacle as a backdrop for a political um, stump speech, basically. Uh, it's a calculated power move going on here. And he says to the people in verse 9, um, yeah, yeah, I conspired against the king, but I didn't kill the princes. Do you know who did? Um, the answer is actually obvious to everyone watching on at that point. Ahab's men had done this. There's no one at this point who's going to stand against Jehu now. Uh, no one is going to stand up against him. He's really the king. And that's the point he's making don't mess with me. The bigger point uh, that Jehu makes in verse 10, though, is that he says, I was read out for us, verse 10. Jehu says, Know then that not a word the Lord has spoken against the house of Ahab will fail. The Lord has done what he announced through his servant Elijah. Now, just like with Jezebel, I think it's right for us to be confronted by this scene, um, but also, uh, really unpleasant though it is, t- to see the justice in it. I realise it's far harder to feel the justice at this point. It's a pretty horrible thing. Um, With Jezebel, at least we knew how evil she was. It's far harder to feel justice at this point. But I think that's for a couple of uh, of reasons I want to just touch on. First thing, I think, and this is a crucial thing, justice will never be nice, will it? It will never look or feel pleasant. Um, 
after all, that's kind of the point of justice, isn't it? If Ahab and Jezebel had wiped out whole family lines, what would or what could real justice look like? Life in prison doesn't quite cut it, does it? I think technically, where possible, an eye for an eye is actual justice. That is, the principle of justice should involve like for like. When someone does something evil and violent, by definition, justice would be proportional and repaid in kind. Secondly, and in this case, just like in every case in history, um, there's no way that humans can dish out perfect justice. It can't be done. That is, this event is just one family line in payment for another family line, but it's not perfect justice because God here is using imperfect instruments like Jehu. It just so happens that in this form of justice, yes, it is in line with God's plans. It is. But it just so happens to kind of be very convenient for Jehu as well. It cements his power. He doesn't seem at all reluctant to take this path. And if I can put it this way, he's not shedding tears in the middle of the bloodshed, is he? I think Jehu could have done this a different way, a more just way, would be my guess. He didn't. In fact, this is just a really normal part of any military coup anywhere in history. Rule number one, overthrowing a king. You might want to take this note down. Rule number one, when overthrowing a king, don't let their sons survive. It's simple. They will grow up and want revenge. It's horrible, but thrones are secured with blood. That's just the way the world has always worked. So I think it's right for us to question how pure Jehu's motives are and how pure and good his methods are, and therefore to realise this sort of justice cannot be perfect. There is justice, but this is very much a world that's marked by sin. From verse 11, Jehu continues the bloodletting. He killed everyone else in Jezreel who remained in the house of Ahab, as well as his chief men, his close friends, his priests. He left no survivor. Then Jehu sets off for another city, killing more people on the way. And I think at this point it's pretty suspect because these are not Ahab's family or friends. They're kind of just more acquaintances, we get the impression. Uh, he seems to be pretty, uh, pretty keen to just kill anyone that mentions Ahab. He finally gets to the city he's going to, Samaria. In verse 17, we're given this summary verse. He killed all who were left there of Ahab's family. He destroyed them according to the word of the Lord spoken to Elijah. Now that last phrase, it's a constant pattern we've seen time and again, the fulfilling of God's word. God had used Jehu as an instrument of judgment, as he said he would. But he's kind of like a rusty blade in the surgeon's hand. He's removing the cancer, it's effective, but it's imperfect and it's violent. Then from verse 18, a final account uh, for today of Jehu's violence. Um, but it's, it's one that doesn't fit the pattern of fulfilling God's word. Uh, again, we didn't read this, but uh, Jehu invites the prophets of Baal to a big worship session, a big get-together. He threatens to kill anyone who doesn't come. It's a pretty good move. Uh, saying it's going to be great, but he's actually just lying a trap for them. Uh, and he kills all the prophets of Baal. He tears down the temple of Baal and turns it into a big toilet. Um, but then the summary of verse 28 just simply says, So Jehu destroyed Baal worship in Israel. Now, at this point, we've come to expect a, a summary statement like that. We come to expect the pattern that he's destroyed Baal worship in Israel according to the word of the Lord. It doesn't say that. That important phrase is missing here. Um, it makes us look back and realize Jehu wasn't told to do this. Now, it's probably a good thing to do at one level. Uh, God does detest people worshiping idols, and uh, he had urged the kings to get rid of Baal worship. But I think we're to take notice that this wasn't instructed by God. It breaks the pattern we've seen uh, where things had been happening according to the word of God. And again, politically, uh, 
this is a smart move from Jehu. He's wiping out all of Ahab's allies. They had, he had sponsored the prophets of Baal. So again, Jehu's eliminating any resistance to his rule. So at very least, I could be reading too much into this, I acknowledge that, but at very least, it's right to question um, how pure Jehu's motives are. But we don't need to wonder for long, because from verse 29, we get an assessment of Jehu. I want to say as well, um, thanks for bearing with me uh, so far through the many details of this chapter without coffee this morning. No one seems to have fallen off their chair so far. Well done. Uh, it's from here, from verse 29, that things will kind of, I think, wrap up in a, a hopefully a helpful way for us all. Have a look at verse 29. You realize it, it's a pretty mixed review for Jehu. Uh, yes, God affirms in verse 30, Jehu has done well in accomplishing what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab all I had in mind to do. But we realize Jehu's heart wasn't really in it and he ends up worshiping golden calves and he didn't keep God's laws carefully with his whole heart. He's an imperfect instrument that yes, God used to bring justice but this is the key thing, I think, as we try and process all this. Where Jehu was excessive, where his motivations weren't pure, we can be assured God, God knows that full well and Jehu won't be getting a free pass. As we've seen so clearly through this chapter, God really cares about justice. So whatever Jehu did that was wrong, God will hold him to account for that. In these final few verses of chapter 10, one of the ways we see God's judgment already on Jehu is that, um, there's just some details about geography at one level, but Jehu's, uh, under Jehu's rule, the, the borders of Israel shrink. They get beaten back by their enemies. I think there's a sure sign for us that God is not really with this great military commander who should be able to beat the nations around him. Even more clearly, uh, the Bible has this elsewhere for us in Hosea 1 verse 4. I think it'll pop up on the screen for us. Uh, we hear that, yes, Jehu himself will face God's judgment. God says, I will punish, though, uh, I'll punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel. But if you're wondering, hang on a second, how fair is this? Jehu did what God asked, and he's now getting punished by God for it? Well, again, let's just tease this out a little bit, because there's a pattern we see time and time in the Bible that I think really um, is helpful to kind of recognize here. God uses flawed people. God even uses people with evil intent to accomplish his good plans. We see it time and again. Uh, next week, we're going to meet the Assyrians and the devastation they cause in Israel, but they do it according to God's word, and God says he will hold them accountable for their atrocities. That is, God always holds people accountable for their actions, and he'll judge Assyria severely for their violence. Think about Pharaoh in the Exodus. Uh, he's the villain of the story there. He has evil intentions, but through that, God displayed his power, Think about Judas or Pontius Pilate or Herod. They all had very key roles in bringing God's plans about, and yet each are held responsible for their actions, for their sin. Uh, what we've seen in this story today is God's justice coming, but it's justice carried out by imperfect people, flawed people. Uh, the great author C.S. Lewis writes about how, in the end, we're all going to serve God's purposes with our lives. That's true for each one of us, but it will make all the difference to us whether we serve him the way John did, that's John the Apostle, or the way Judas did. Either way, God's plans will come about and they will be good. But we get to, we get to be either Judas or, Jesus, or John in the way we uh, serve him. And he will hold us responsible for the part we play in his plans. Well, with everything we've uh, covered this morning, though, 
Uh, where to finish is what we need to know about the justice of God and why it really matters for us. Uh, what we've seen so far is that God doesn't bring justice straight away when we might want it. God never promises to bring justice when we want it. After all, with Ahab's family, God was very patient with them uh, for generations. He was warning, he was waiting, he was waiting, he was warning. But justice can only be delayed for so long. Now that, I think, serves as both a huge comfort for God's people all around the world, uh, those who suffer at the hands of evil people in ways we can't imagine. Justice is coming. But it also serves as a warning, doesn't it, for all those who, like Jezebel, remained defiance against Jesus, uh, who remained defiant towards God's King Jesus. Uh, justice is being delayed. Uh, God is warning. God is waiting. But God has set a day when Jesus will return as the King of Kings, as the judge, and we will all stand before his throne. The wonderful news is that on, those day, on that day, those who belong to Jesus, who have put our trust in him, we get to celebrate and rejoice. It'll be a great day. But for those who haven't put their trust in Jesus, there will be weeping and mourning, knowing that God's patience has finally run out. But unlike the justice we've seen in two kings, that day will be a day of perfect justice. It will be a day where every wrong is made right, every evil is paid for and restored. And again, that sounds, I'm sure, so good to the many people in our world who are crying out for justice, and there are many of them. Still, for most of us, most of the time, we are very uncomfortable with the topic of judgment, with God's justice. I think it's always an unsettling topic, an uncomfortable topic, topic because we know that we too are flawed. Uh, we haven't loved God with our whole hearts. We worship other gods. We give our hearts to uh, things that God has made and serve them rather than to love and serve God. And yes, we shudder at the physical violence we've read about, perhaps. Our modern world doesn't have that kind of violence that we're caught up in. But uh, modern sins... Uh, they might look more polite, but they're just as devastating and can destroy lives, causing unbelievable pain, pain uh, without shedding blood. You can destroy someone's reputation behind their backs. You can assassinate someone's character in your hearts and then just treat them with indifference, giving them the cold shoulder that destroys uh, their, uh, their self-confidence. You can seek to destroy someone's joy out of spite or jealousy. You can crush or control someone's autonomy or freedom just for our own ego or power trips. You see, like it's pretty bad if you think about the many ways we can destroy others. The lift list is a long one, the many ways that can happen, but the point is, it's a less bloody age we live in, but our hearts are just the same. And that is a concerning thought before a God who has promised and warned to bring justice. But, but we do not need to fear God's justice. Even with all that... There is great news. Uh, there is a greater king who secured his throne with blood, but not the blood of his enemies, like Jehu did. Uh, Jesus secured his throne with his own blood. In an act of shocking violence, a grotesque spectacle, uh, Jesus stepped into the place of the guilty on the cross. I mentioned before, justice does dem demand an eye for an eye, and we're told the wages for sin is death. And so Jesus died in our place. Uh, justice for our sin was paid by his blood, not our own. He endured the unthinkable weight of judgment that otherwise would rest on us. How good is that? 
Uh, Jesus has already paid with his blood for all of our evil, all of our violence, all of our sin in an incredible act of mercy. I think sometimes uh, we can get a bit sentimental or romantic about the cross or even just forgetful uh, or downplay uh, the cross. But a passage like Two Kings points, I think, in some ways to the horror of the cross. It reminds us of violence and it shows what justice costs, the cost due for our sin. And again, helps us see just how much God loves us and how great His grace is. As we're putting together uh, this service uh, for today, we thought a great way to kind of respond to this wonderful news is to share communion together after the service, having uh, heard again about uh, justice being paid by our Saviour Jesus. So we'll be celebrating communion together in a moment. Uh, For now, would you join me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you that because you love this world, uh, because you love your people, we can have confidence that you will bring justice and justice that's perfect and right and complete. Thank you all the more uh, that you seek to show mercy first. Even though you bring justice, uh, you seek to be patient and kind above that. Thank you most of all for our King Jesus and for the price he paid for us. Please help us never take this for granted, but grow our hearts as people uh, who celebrate your mercy and grace to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.